Hello and welcome to our Isaiah podcast. My name's Martha and we're currently as a church doing a sermon series called This Is Our God, where we're looking at who God is as revealed in the book of Isaiah. Now Isaiah is such a fantastic and rich book that we wanted to take a bit more time to unpack it and give you some extra resources as you encounter God in Isaiah for yourself. So for our first episode today, I'm joined by Tom Webster. Hi, Tom. Hi, Martha. Great to be with you. And some of you may know Tom, he did a fantastic job of kicking off This Is Our God series. Um, but for those of you who don't know Tom, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, well, hello, everybody. Uh, really nice to be with you. Uh, my name is Tom. Um, I'm married to the lovely Becky. I've got three little boys. If you've heard any of my sermons, you've probably um, heard all about them. Um, I've been coming to Kingsgate since 2006. I think it is now. So when the, the building opened in, in Peterborough, I became a Christian here and uh, have, uh, have loved it, and it's great being part of the church, part of a family, and um, yeah, that's, 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 that's me. Amazing. Well, it's really great to have you here to share with us. Um, what I love about your teaching gift is that you help the person who sit, is sitting under your teaching to connect with the Bible in a new way, see how they're part of the story. So thank you for being here and thank you for, um, for what you bring. Why don't you, why don't you do that for us? Why don't you help us connect with this story of Isaiah? Um, but, bef- but before we get into Isaiah, what's the story of the Bible up until this point? Give us like a roadmap of, of this story. Yeah, great. I, I think it's a really great thing to do, actually, because I think very often... You know, on a Sunday morning, for good reason. Obviously, we don't have hours on end every Sunday, but we, we jump straight into things, and um, it, it's 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 brilliant. You've, you've got to get down to whatever the message is about. But sometimes things like this, these kind of forums are nice because you can do a bit of the background. And I do think it's really helpful because, you know, if this is going to help people to read the book of Isaiah, when you start reading through it, it can be a difficult book, and you're, you're reading about Israel, you're reading about Judah, you're reading about different kingdoms, and you, I think it's just, it's useful to take the time to think, well, where are we actually sitting in the story of salvation, in the story of, of the Bible? So I'm just going to give you a whistle-stop tour of the Bible up to the point of Isaiah. Uh, so I'm going to start with creation, but don't worry, it's not going to be that long. So um, God created human beings, and he created human beings for, uh, for relationship. But as we know from the story in, in Genesis chapter 3, human beings um, turned their back on God, so betrayed him. And I think when you consider that he created them for relationship, created them out of love, it gives you an idea of why God is so upset by that, why, you know, when we read in the book of Isaiah, it comes across as a kind of broken relationship and, and so on. But God being a loving God, he didn't just leave people where they were. He didn't just leave people as having turned their backs on him, having, if you like, sort of moved away from the sunshine into the darkness, away from the light. He wanted to put it right. So he wanted to bring a blessing where there was a curse. He wanted to put it right where it went wrong. And he chose to do that through human beings. So God reaches down to a man named Abraham and he promises to, uh, to give Abraham a family. Um, and he goes out and shows him, if you remember, this is Genesis chapter 12. So he takes him out and shows him all the stars in the sky. And, you know, it's a lovely image, but basically saying this is what your family will be like. So not only numerous, but, you know, there'll be light in the darkness. And this is part of his plan. He's going to make them a family and bless them as a family so that they can be a blessing to others as a way to bring the blessing um, to not just Abraham's family, but to the nations. Abraham has a child called Isaac. Isaac has a son called uh, Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel. And so whenever we hear the word Israel uh, in the Old Testament, it's not really talking about the sort of 
landmass in the Middle East we think of today or the political Israel, really what it's talking about is that family, that family through which God is going to bring um, his blessing. Uh, Israel then has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But still, whenever Israel is talked about, all those tribes of Israel are talked about, you are talking about this family through which God is going to bring his blessing, is going to bless the nations. Now, after the time of King Solomon, so Solomon, you remember, is David's son, actually there is a civil war in the kingdom, and Israel splits into two. So you then have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So sometime after 930 BC, which is important for Isaiah because Isaiah's in the 8th century uh, BC. And what happens is you get 10 tribes of Israel in the north. Um, So whenever you read in the book of Isaiah, Israel, it's actually referring to those 10 tribes, so to the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to in the book of Isaiah as Ephraim. Um, And then you've got two tribes in the south. So Judah and Benjamin are the two in the south, um, and they just become known as Judah. So what you have then is the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom, so the northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim, the southern kingdom Judah, which has the capital city of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is basically the prophet for that southern kingdom. So he's there almost like a sort of advisor to the kings telling what you know, bringing God's message and saying what's going to happen at the moment, what's going to happen in the future, you know, words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of warning, um, and so on. So that's roughly how we get there. Great. That is so (laughs) helpful. And yeah, I definitely have found myself that the better our whole Bible knowledge and knowing where what we're reading at that point in time sits in the story, the more, the more we can learn, the more we can understand. Um, So Let's press in then with who was Isaiah and what's going on for the people of God at the time of Isaiah. Yeah, great. So um, what we know of Isaiah, there's not loads of um, biographical information about him, actually, like someone like Jeremiah in the Old Testament. We learn a bit more about him. What we do know of Isaiah, though, he was the son of Amos. Uh, it's Amos, not Amos, so not to be confused with the, uh, the, the Old Testament prophet. Um, tells us he was married, married to, just as to the prophetess. Um, some of the commentaries say that might just mean she's the wife of a prophet, um, or perhaps she was you know, a prophet in her own right. Uh, maybe Isaiah had these words from the Lord and checked them out with his wife first. I don't know. I think that's probably a good idea if they were, <laughs> if they were uh, both prophets. Um, there is a bit of a tradition that suggests he may have been royalty. Um, I don't know if this tradition is really very strong, having looked into it, um, but probably a, um, uh, an aristocrat. Am I saying that right? Is that the English way or the American way? Okay, yeah. Um, not that the American way is wrong, but you understand what I mean. Um, and so just that would explain kind of his access. You know, not everyone just had access to their kings and queens and so on in that day. And so that would kind of explain why he appears to have that. Um, we know he had two sons, um, so Shia Jashub, and Maha Shalal Hashbaz, um, catchy names. They are named with a reason, though, so they're given prophetic names, really. Um, so perhaps we'll come back to that because it fits into the context. Uh, but yeah, so what Isaiah was there, he was there really to advise the kings. And he prophesied, it tells us in, in verse 1. In fact, let me just crack open my Bible and read that. Have you got it in front of you? Yep. In fact, Martha, can you read verse 1 for us? So verse 1 of chapter 1, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Yeah, so there we have it then. So um, Judah and Jerusalem, so he's prophesying to the south. So it's called Judah and Jerusalem sort of is the capital, the, the, the main city, the main focal, focal point, And that's where he lived. Um, and those four kings who are talked about in the book of Isaiah, and he perhaps lived and died under a fifth king, Manasseh. So there's a tradition, I think it's called the Ascension of Isaiah. That's, and I hinted at this on, on Sunday morning, that, that Isaiah, the, the, the evil king Manasseh, put Isaiah in a hollowed out tree and, and cut, cut it through with a, a wooden saw. And that was how he died. And so in Hebrews, I think it's 11.37 says, some were, um, were sawed in two. That's probably a reference to Isaiah. I think that's a bit of a stronger tradition, that one. So probably happened. So yeah, I think that's pretty much what we know of Isaiah. Great. And what was happening for the people of God at the time that Isaiah was yeah. prophesying. So I think as soon as you open up Isaiah, and we, we obviously started, my sermon was looking at um, chapters one to, to five, and then um, that was, re- I mean, whether that was the very first thing Isaiah ever gave as a, a sermon, we don't know. I mean, it, they may be in chronological order, that might be in sort of thematic order. Um, but what you leap straight into when you're looking there is, as I described it on Sunday, most of the commentaries were, it's almost like a law court scene. So it seems like Isaiah is picturing um, God in the, uh, God as judge, and he's reading out this sort of diatribe, this list of charges against uh, the people of Judah. And so what's happening at this point is, essentially people are engaging in lots of religious hypocrisy. Um, there's, you know, plenty of religious activity coming going on, but there's also complete neglect of all the vulnerable people in yeah. society. It's clear Isaiah is something of a, um, what would the term be, a social... Activist. Social activist, social justice, yeah. kind of, um, you know, that, that seems to be, you know, they're, they're neglecting the widow, the orphan, yeah. the sojourner, perhaps the... Sojourner. Yeah. 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 That, so that would be an, someone in the country. Like an immigrant, coming, really. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that would be the, the, the modern term. So, and I think that just about maps on to today, you know, perhaps obviously with social security and stuff like that, it's not quite the same for a widow. Back in those days, you know, that would basically mean you would have to be looked after by people. So what he's picking out really is the most vulnerable society in society being neglected and seems like far worse as well. Plenty of idolatry going on. So, you know, worshipping other gods or maybe not even worshipping other gods, but just worshipping God, but not worshipping him from the heart, but yeah. instead just from it. So so I think that's, if you like, the sort of social background. Um, there's a couple of things going on when we look at, chapters 1 to 39 um so i think there are sort of obvious divisions when we look at the book of isaiah is that okay to get into that now yeah Yeah. so it's a big book right it is a big book (laughs) and so whenever you're going to get into a big book of the bible i think it's always good to you know like andrew ollerton says on his um um, his, his Bible. You'll have noticed Andrew's quite rude about me when he preaches. I don't, I don't like to compliment him, but it's, uh, I'm joking. But it's, uh, you know, it's a nice, nice way of looking at it. You know, how do you eat an elephant? Um, you know, you eat it one bite at a time. And I think that's the kind of thing we need to think about when you come to these, what they'd be called a major prophet, which mm. doesn't mean they're a more important prophet than the minor prophets. It just means their books are large. So it's good to break them down into pieces. And there are some obvious divisions in Isaiah. The most obvious two, I think, uh, are between chapters 1 to 39 and then 40 to 46. And I think there are some other 
obvious divisions beyond that perhaps we can get into. Um, what I quite like about those divisions, though, is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are 66 chapters in Isaiah and there are 66 books in the Bible. Mm. There are also 39 chapters in the Old Testament, sorry, 39 books in the Old yeah. Testament and 27 in the New. Wow, yeah. So it maps on quite nicely. Not only that, the messages seem to chime quite nicely as well because, you know, the first 39 chapters are quite Old Testamenty, if you like. They're, you know, sort of about judgment and then shoots of hope going up. And then when you get into chapters 40 to 66, those map quite nicely onto the New Testament. In fact, chapter 40 actually begins with, that's where we get the um, uh, the um, voice crying in the wilderness. So yeah. it's like John the Baptist the coming the in. Yeah. Uh, you know, we get the picture of Jesus slap bang in the middle with Isaiah 53 and it finishes with the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a nice, I, I don't know if any of that was conscious wow, by the people yeah. who did the chapter divisions, but it's a helpful way of thinking about it. And chapters 1 to 39 is particularly important for the context because it's clear that that was happening around the time of Isaiah. So that's around the 8th century when Isaiah was prophesying. Whereas when you get to chapter 40 and onwards, perhaps chapter 40 up to 55, um, that's really mainly focusing on events 200 years later. We'll get into you know, how Isaiah knew about that and whether he was projected in the future and all that kind of stuff in, in, in a bit. Um, so I think if we, if we stick for this question just to what's going on in chapters 1 to 39 because it's around Isaiah's time, and commentators talk about that as being the Assyrian crisis. Um, so ultimately, what you've got, the, the, the sort of world power on the scene at that point is the kingdom of Assyria. Um, now, we're doing this as a, you know, an audio recording, and most people probably haven't got a picture of, you know, Israel and certainly not an ancient sort of picture of Israel and Judah and so on in their head and what was going on. But I think it maps quite nicely, I don't know if you ever thought of it, onto North America, right? So if you think mm. about um, map of the USA, if you think back to the sort of civil war in the US, everything above the Mason-Dixon line was the north, mm. everything below was the south. Yep. And then above that, you've got Canada. And then you've got, is it Greenland to the north? Yes. West, yeah. Um, northeast. Oh, uh, yeah, northeast yeah. and then Alaska. Um, so that maps quite nicely to Judah in the south, sort of the south of the US, if you like. Yeah. Um, Israel in the north is like the north of the US. And then you've got Syria or Aram, as it's known mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, is sort of Canada. And then you've got Greenland is Assyria. Right. Okay. <laughs> If that doesn't help, just forget it. But if it does, then go with that if you, if you listen For to For all the American listeners, that's going to be very so helpful. So what's happening is you've got Israel. So remember, that's the northern kingdom and Aram above it or Syria. Um, they basically form an alliance because they're being um, concerned about the power of Assyria above right. them. And so what they want to do is they want to get Judah into this alliance. Mm -hmm. And they're basically bullying them into it and saying, if they don't, they'll just remove their king and put a king in okay. who, you know, they can bully and so on at that point. So it's a bit like North in America or the North of the USA making an alliance with Canada and trying to force the, you know, the southern cities yep. into that alliance to help them against Greenland. It's starting to sound a bit unrealistic, isn't it, with Greenland being the main power? But anyway, that's the kind <laughs> of idea. It maps quite nicely if you think about it yep. like that. But what actually happens is King Ahaz, who we, you mentioned when you read uh, chapter one just there, um, as one of the four kings that Isaiah prophesied during the time of, instead of joining this alliance, 
he does a bit of a double cross and he actually goes to the king of Assyria. So if you like, he sort of double crosses, goes yep. to Greenland um, and decides actually that he'll make an alliance right. with him instead. Um, and Isaiah is sent to Ahaz to convince him not to do this. So we can read, I've got it here in front of me. Um, don't know what chapter this is from. I think it's in chapter seven, I think. Have you got chapter seven in front of you? So does it begin verse four? Yes. Say to him, be careful. Yeah, verse So four. say to him, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. So here is then the king of the south and God is essentially saying, don't worry, don't panic that mm. these two kingdoms are bullying you. You don't have to do anything. Now, they may be big, powerful kingdoms as far as you're concerned, but to God, they're just two smoldering stubs of firewood. Mm. Um, and when he says that, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Well, Rezin is the king of Aram, or Syria, uh, and the son of Ramalia is another name for the um, uh, the uh, King Pika of Israel. So ultimately, what's happening is those two those two countries are trying to um, bully the um, country of Judah, uh, the kingdom of Judah. And what God is saying to him is, don't panic, don't do anything about mm. it, don't get an alliance with them. But Ahaz doesn't listen, gets into this sort of unholy alliance, if you like. And really, that is the message of this part of the book. It's don't trust in the things of the world. Mm. Don't trust in the big bullying powers, trusting God instead. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of bookended at the end of this 39 chapters, because we have the good king um, Hezekiah rise up and a similar thing starts to happen because Assyria by this time they've already actually defeated Israel the northern kingdom they've taken a lot of people into captivity they've moved a lot of their own people into Israel they've intermarried and um, uh, that intermarried between people of the covenant and people who are not part of the covenant uh, is where we get the Samaritans from in the New Testament which is why they're so hated if you like um, and by that time, Assyria now, very, very powerful. They come to besiege um, Jerusalem. And at that point, again, the message is the same from Isaiah. It's basically, you know, don't panic, hold strong in God. Mm. And we can see that in chapter 37, verses 33 and onwards. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here, he will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. Uh, by the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And then we read this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the bodies got up the next morning, sorry, when the people got up the next morning, uh, there were all the dead bodies. So Zennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Wow. So kind of bookending at the beginning of the chapter of this section, if you like, chapters 1 to 39, we have this message, which is don't get in this unholy alliance, just trust in God. Ahaz ignores God, and there's a big cost to that, ends up having to pay, uh, pay his dues to this power, Assyria. Then the good king, Hezekiah, listens, mm. does what Isaiah says, trusts in God, and God wins his battle for him. Yeah. And in between, you've got all these oracles of judgment, and it's almost saying the same message. It's basically God saying, look, 
don't get involved with these bullies, with these powers. Don't be thinking, you know, if you're the people of God, you can't trust in God. You've got to go with these big kingdoms. Actually, look, God is the one who's in charge of these mm. kingdoms. He's making judgment over these kingdoms. So get in line with God. Yeah. And that's the message, I think, of these really for us today as well. That's the context yeah. of the time. But that's, it's the same thing the prophet would say to us today. Same thing the Lord would say. Is, trust in me, not in yeah, earthly things so good. like yeah I think that's so helpful because we do often well, there's a lot of history that is happening you know there's so many kings cited and um in any of the books in the Old Testament and it's that actually so helpful to take some time to to, to say actually what is going on sometimes we get a bit more narrative sometimes it's a bit more confusing yeah um and you can at different points you know go back to the history books which do have a more thorough explanation but I think it's so powerful how that context that's going on is you know and we're using today's geography to understand it and it does take a bit of time to tease it out but when you do you see actually it's, it's the same message um yeah just in a different way for us today of, of that what are we what are we turning to what are we trusting to absolutely what yeah. are we looking to i mean it doesn't matter what time you're in people are the same mm -hmm. and i think the message for the people of god is the same it's you know will you trust me ultimately and yeah. and obviously within all that there's all the beautiful things about you know the promises to come of the messiah and so on and the hope so it's about trusting god and that hope will come and god will win your your victories for you which you know helps us in our our workplace in our day-to-day -day. and you know that's why getting into the context sometimes i think you know it's not just boring bible study mm. it's not these things it it enriches things so we can see that yeah. actually you know this is god's message to us just as Ahaz or Hezekiah could trust the Lord to win um, their battles uh, for them. Um, so can we today. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, so we've, we've looked a little bit at how the book is organized into these three sections. Um, I know some people, um, there's, different, there's different schools of thought about Isaiah and who wrote it, um, in that there are some people that would say one author named Isaiah there are others that would say there's more than one either two or three Isaiahs what are your thoughts on that where where do you sit what have you read that's been helpful yeah so I mean again you know for people who are gonna dig into their Bibles more and get commentaries and start reading things you're gonna come across this you know and again not the kind of thing we talk about on a Sunday morning really we tend to just preach from our convictions so haven't always got the time to go into the background with things like this but yeah one of the things you'll you'll if you buy a commentary on Isaiah or you look at any kind of studies or lectures or anything like that like any Bible book it will talk about who wrote it and when and so on uh, but one thing you'll get with Isaiah that's perhaps different from some others is yeah this idea that is it written by just one person Isaiah perhaps with a bit of editing because a lot of the Bible books quite you know we were talking a little bit before about this Martha and you were saying about you know the the idea you know if Moses wrote the bit where Moses dies mm. how does that work you know yeah. so, so we know that you know the Bible has some editing along the way I like the way N.T. Wright puts it that the Bible as he sees it, the Bible is ultimately the book that God wanted us to have. Mm, so what yeah. we have, the translation we, we have, or, you know, the originals from which we translate was what the Lord wanted mm. us to have. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't always mean that when you've got a book of the Bible, it was written by the same person all the way through. However, I do tend to think with the books of the Bible almost entirely it was written by the books we think it was written by the people we think but, mm -hmm. but there may have been little edits you know along the way um when they reached that final form and were accepted by that's what i take as being the word of god so i don't mind there being you know edits or 
because this, I think, is based, Isaiah's writings are really an anthology of writings and sermons perhaps he gave over the years that have been put together. So they've been edited into yeah. a form, just like any modern book would be. You know, you do writings in different ways and then there'd be a final edit and an arrangement. Um, and ultimately, for me, the Holy Spirit is the author. Yeah. But I still believe that there is a unity to this book that makes me think you're talking about one author the whole way through, uh, and that is Isaiah, as it claims right at the beginning of the book. So I would say you've got Isaiah writing um, the whole of the book of Isaiah with perhaps some arrangements which may have been done by other people at somewhere along. But, but ultimately, I'm happy to say that Isaiah wrote the book. I think as early as something like the, the 1700s, this idea of splitting Isaiah 1 to 39 and 40 to 66 came in. And then in the 1800s, a further split that you've got Isaiah 1 to 39 uh, 40 to 55 and then 56 to 66 so you may even have three Isaiahs um, and so again you'll 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 come across this if you read any commentaries on it so the question is where does it come from is it right what do we think about it um, I think the reason it comes in is ultimately well the most obvious reason is that Chapters 1 to 39 is clearly about, as we've just discussed, really, the time of Isaiah, what's going on in the 8th century. Mm, yeah. When you get into chapters 40 to 55, you're then really looking at the time of the exile. So Assyria is no longer the major power in the world. It's Babylon. So if you remember, um, we did the series on Daniel. You know, Daniel was during the time of exile. So it was one of the people taken into exile. So it's around that time. Um, which would be, when was the exile? 586 BC, yeah. I want to say. So we're talking the 6th century BC. So we're perhaps talking, you know, 150, 200 years later, depending on, you know, which which portion of Isaiah we're, we get. Well, the, the year that Uzziah died, King Uzziah mm -hmm. would be 740 BC. So, you know, if you if you take it from there, we're talking... Um, 150. 150 years, yep. yeah, thank you. I'm, as an accountant, I'm no good with numbers. <laughs> These things. Um, so the idea would be then, well, seen as all of a sudden the writing changes and background is then assumed to be the exilic period, some 150, 200 years later, how could Isaiah have written that? Or to put it another way, did Isaiah write that? Or um, was it written by perhaps... Uh, um, a follower of mm. Isaiah or a school of Isaiah or something like that, someone who I don't know, studied Isaiah's life or something like that. And then the other is the post Isaiah period from 56 to um, 66. So was that written by a third one? I do think the main argument comes down here is, do you believe that God knows the future? If you don't, you probably have to go with two or three Isaiahs or even you know, multiple authors, you know, some would say more than that. For me, I have no problem with God knowing what the future is whatsoever. So that doesn't bother me at all. And I'm quite happy with the idea that Isaiah, if you like, was sort of prophetically projected into the future. And so when you get to that, what we'd call second section of the book, I'm happy that that might, is probably just the original Isaiah just writing in that, um, in that area. It's a little bit more complicated than that because it's not just that he's talking about things that happen in the future. He does seem to write as though he's writing from that time yes. in the future. So he mentions King Cyrus, for example. So, you know, you're talking about someone who lived around that time. But again, I have no issue with that. Um, I mean, there are other theories, I think, 
again, this is always dangerous to do off the top of your head with this, but it, I think it's in chapter 30. Um, sorry, let me just find this find for you. So if I have a look at chapter 30, yeah. I think towards the end. Yeah. So just first eight. I hope this is the one I'm thinking. Now go write it on a tablet for them. Mm. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come, it may be an ever everlasting witness. Yeah. And so what some of the theories would say is that Isaiah's writing that in his time, but what the Lord's doing is they're telling him, but, you know, write this, have, have it down on a scroll and, you know, put it for the people so it'd be helpful for them. For the so future generations. Is it that he wrote the stuff that happens in verses 14 onwards and that then it was sort of taken up you know opened in those latter years by people maybe some edits or whatever mm. i don't know look if i'm honest i take it as just being the work of isaiah i think the burden of proof is on the people that want to say there are multiple authors there are other arguments i think that say that that it's one author and there's a lot of unity there um I think, for example, seems the whole of the ancient world seems to think there's just one author. Mm. Killer argument for me is the New Testament seems to say that. When Jesus quotes Isaiah, mm. he does quote from the beginning of the book and the end book. He doesn't seem to suggest it's mm. more than one author. Same with other writers in the New Testament. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, people writing at the time of the Dead Sea yeah. Scrolls, the Qumran community, they seem to talk as if there's only one Isaiah. Um, there's other books around that time, the intertestamental period, who seem to talk as though there's only one Isaiah. So most of that is enough for me. I don't think there's a great deal to be lost if, you know, it was later yeah. edits or anything like that. But I'd rather stick to the traditional period, the tr sort of traditional view if, if there's no other reason, no, uh, you know, no huge proof the other way. And one other thing that's always struck me is, if there was this genius who wrote that beautiful stuff between mm. verses 40 to 66, you know, where bear in mind we have Isaiah 52 and 53, some of my favorite verses in the Bible, yeah. perhaps we can read a little bit of sure. it later on, um, or the new heavens and the new earth stuff. Yeah. Some genius that wrote all that, but we've just lost their name and we don't know who they are anymore. And somehow they just got confused with someone writing to. It doesn't ring true to mm. me. And I think as long as you're happy with the idea that the Lord knows the future, I still think the burden of proof is on other people who want to say there's more than one yeah. Isaiah. So yeah. did you have any views on that? Um, well, I've been thinking about this um, as we've been preparing for this series and I, I've read both sides. I tend to, I, I haven't landed where I'm sat. Um, I think the main question I've been thinking about is something you were sort of just tapping into there of what is at stake if if right, it's yeah. one author or if it's three. Um, and I, I definitely agree. It's the important question is, do we believe that God, you know, has all knowledge at yeah. any time and could easily through his prophet. And so that's why I struggle you know, in, in Daniel where there's other things as well, where Daniel receiving word from God can know stuff in the future yeah. because we believe in a God who knows all things at all time and speaks through people into his word. Um, so that for me is an important thing that's at stake. Is it essential that it's by Isaiah for us to encounter God in it? N no, as in if, if it's yeah. three authors, we can still meet with God. There are bits of the Bible where we don't know where the, who the author is, um, thinking like Hebrews in the, in yeah. the New Testament. Um, and it doesn't limit our encountering God in it. And um, it is an interesting question. It's important that we wrestle through, you know, what, what does my 
yeah, do I believe that God can prophesy the future? But I'd, I don't think it's essential that we, you know, you land it. So I'm going to continue to go on the journey until I land yeah. a position. Um, I think one thing for me in the in the New Testament is when they do refer to books in the Old Testament, there sometimes are uh, a shorthand way of, you know, so for example, they sometimes talk about the Psalms by, they, they refer to it as David wrote yeah. it. And we know that David didn't write all the Psalms because there's other Psalms that have got other authors listed under it. And the same with Moses. Sometimes they say Moses said, um, and we do know that there's a bit of Deuteronomy that's like after Moses died, right. there's not been a prophet like him since that it says. Yeah. Um, so I think it comes back to me of, it's not essential that you're either way, but it's, it's interesting to go on the journey and it's good to check what our beliefs are about yeah. who God is. I think um, one thing I'd just add to that, I, I agree with that. I, I think one thing I'd add to that, and this is where I found N.T. Wright, who we... we, we um, uh, Quite quite a bit on a Sunday, I think. You know, for for for, for a big scholar, I think gets quite a lot of uh, um, uh, mentions and sermons and so on. I think one of the things he's really helped me with is, uh, and you mentioned sort of reading both sides. Mm. I know by that you just mean both sides of that particular argument. Yeah. But it does when whenever you get into some study, and I think it's a useful thing to mention for people listening to something like this that you know if you're digging into study and so on, that very often there are two sides when you read a lot of things and, and those sides can a uh, lot of things about the bible and those sides can be as simple as one side who believes and the other side mm. who doesn't so they'd be called you know well you've got evangelical or believing scholars uh, and then you've got perhaps critical scholars who mm. i mean it sounds a weird way to to live your life but you know to sort of study theology and yet not believe there's a god <laughs> but yeah like, I, I guess it's still an interesting field and so on but um, what you have to be careful of, I think, is knowing what you're reading. Mm. So we don't want to be just fundamentalists who only read one side of things. You want to be open to the other arguments and so on. But both of them may sound convincing. I'm trying to think what that proverb is that's, you know, an argument sounds convincing until you've heard the other mm. side or something like that. I don't know the chapter and verse, but it's, it's a useful one because you have to know where is this source coming from. Yeah. There is no point of view without a point of view. There is no unbiased source. Yeah. And it's not just people who believe in God who are biased. It's a bias not to believe in God when you come to a source as well. And so you do sometimes have that where you're reading something and it's a believing source or you're reading something and it's a, a non-believing source. You've got to know what you're reading to be able to read both. And where I found N.T. Wright helpful is he's not just sort of, right, we just, you know, the Bible says it, that settles it, and that's the end of everything. Uh, nor is he sort of on the liberal side not believing. Mm. He kind of brings the two worlds together quite nicely. So brings scholarship yeah. into the believing world. That means you know, it's there, it's been there for years. Um, but the idea being, that I guess what I'm trying to say is, we don't have to be scared of Bible study. Yeah. We don't have to just mm. stick with, you know, one source of things. But I do think we can be very, very confident that... Whenever we read arguments about things that sort of try and take us away from the inspiration of scripture or mm. say this wasn't written by this person or whatever, there's always good arguments on the other side. Yeah. And I think it's good to read everything. And if I'm honest, I spend most of my time reading believing sources because yeah, I believe. You know? Yeah, it's the same. It's, you've yeah. got to have the starting point of this yeah. is the word of God, you know, inspired by him, written by human authors, inspired yeah. by the Holy Spirit. We all have a starting point. We all have biases. I think it's better to get those biases out on the table. And I have no problem saying I'm a believer and therefore I'm 
going to spend most of my time studying from believing people. And sometimes you meet people who always think you're not challenging yourself. And that I like to challenge myself. But at the same time, I don't want my whole of my life to be like, I tend to read, you know, even with deep study, it tends to be devotional type yeah. stuff that's going to make things. Yeah. yeah. And it's good to have questions. And that's that would concern yeah. me if, you know, we were, we were looking at eyes and saying, you can't have any questions, Absolutely, can't yeah. query anything. Yeah. Um, but it's coming back to the, do I believe this is the word of God? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah, um, absolutely. Great. Um, so I know this is a book that you've encountered and been prepping for with your preach recently and, and for this. Um, why don't you share with us, what, what do you find hard about the book of Isaiah and what do you love about the book of Isaiah? Yeah, I mean, one, one reason we're doing something like this is we're hoping we can have a bit of a chat about it and it just excites a bit of interest for people and perhaps just puts a few building blocks in place so people can open up the book to read it for themselves. But I'd have to be honest and say, I don't think we can do that in a half an hour, 45-minute mm. chat or whatever it ends up being. Because actually, let's just face it, Isaiah is a big and complicated book. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's both a well-known book and there are also huge parts of it which are not known at all. Um, and what actually happens if you think, oh, great, you know, that's excited a bit of interest. I'm going to start reading it. You will find actually when you get into it that it's complicated, mm. that you can't quite work out where the context is. And that. So that I definitely find difficult compared to say a book like Philippians or something. Yeah. You know, we're talking about four chapters and it's very clear what the message is and it's one voice all the way through. Then, you know, that's fine. Uh, but I think whenever you're looking at biblical prophecy, especially the major prophets, you know, the, the larger books, I think that's just going to be a difficulty in and of itself. What I've found to overcome that, though, is, again, get yourself a commentary and the early sort of chapters of those commentaries that break the book down for you, give the background context. Yeah. Like with anything else, it, it just, you know, if you've got a bit of context, you understand more what you're, what you're reading and, and what you're looking at. So I found that a challenge, just the sheer size of the book, yeah. getting my head around the context as well. Um, I think another thing, if we're honest, when you read Old Testament prophets, um, as much as, you know, when I gave my sermon, I'm talking about how judgment is about justice and it's, it's a wonderful thing and so on. But that doesn't mean that actually some of the things we're reading about judgment and so on aren't jarring. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us. Well, feelings are feelings, you know, there's, they're not wrong or right, they're just feelings. So you're going to have that as a modern person, I think, when you read um, those judgments and so on. But actually, something in Isaiah has really helped me with that throughout, you know, the whole of my being a Christian. And that is that there's a particular Bible teacher called R.C. Sproul who, who died a few years ago, but I think was brilliant. And very early on for me in being a, a Christian, I read his book and listened to his sermon series called The Holiness of God, uh, which I think kicks off with, uh, might be wrong on that in the sermon series, but I think one of them at least, and I think it's the first one, is about Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, so yeah. him, you know, going having the the, the, the vision of the Lord yeah. on the throne in the king that you, in the year that the king Uzziah died, um, and just that explanation of what holiness was that it's not just mm. about purity and goodness, but it's about being totally other, yeah, totally separate, totally different, but at the same time, although God is those things, He wants to be among us, so He makes yeah. the moves, but it's on His terms and so on. And I think something about just that revelation of holiness mm. that God is, is not God almighty, uh, not God almighty, he's God almighty. You know, he's, mm. he's holy, he's other. And 
that makes it all the more beautiful that he wants yeah. to be our friend, that he wants to be close to us, that he wants to be Emmanuel, God with us. But I think getting that really helped me to understand just that he will not negotiate with his mm. holiness, how important it is, how it's actually very hard for us to understand that. But it helps me to understand why uh, the judgment of God has to happen, yeah. why it can sometimes seem to me, because I am an, a man of unclean lips, you know, and I live among a people mm. of unclean lips, as Isaiah said in, in chapter six, why that helps me to understand that actually in my fallen mind with all its fallen thinking and so on i won't always understand just how pure and holy god is mm. how bad sin is and therefore how much needed judgment is and yeah. that's helped me not just read the judgment passages in isaiah but almost everything in the old mm. testament and some yeah. of the tougher stuff in the in the new testament yeah that's really helpful i think it's it is that's what we want to do with this series why we're bringing kind of two characteristics each sunday and sometimes they do seem almost in opposition yeah. but they're not and that's the paradox isn't yeah, it that, yeah. um and it helps almost that the the relationship of those two different characteristics help us like go deeper because it's not a 2d one-dimensional like god that we have it's like a it's a god that will always there'll always be something new to learn about him yeah, yeah. always another and i'm sure we'll get um, into the next life still with lots of these questions yeah, um, no, on our lips but what so so i think we started we started to touch on it but anything else you love about isaiah yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if those are the things I find difficult, mm. there's lots of stuff I love. And it, again, it comes back to that. There are parts of Isaiah that are known really well and other parts of it not that are not uh, known quite so well. And one of the things that happens, if we go back to what I was saying before about when Isaiah came to uh, King Ahaz and was basically trying to convince him to, to trust in the Lord, it's at that point when uh, Isaiah actually says to Ahaz, you can ask the Lord for a sign. Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds very pious, but actually it's yeah. probably because he's already made his mind up not to trust the Lord. Um, but then he actually offers him the sign. So therefore the Lord himself will give you it. This is in chapter 7, mm. verse 13. Um, can't see the little numbers there, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And if you think back to the context then, because we mm. often think Emmanuel, it means God with us. So we think that means, you know, intimacy. And so, and it does mean all those things. But if you think about what the context we were talking about is there, you know, that he's trying to convince him, you don't need to make this alliance with this big bullying kingdom, mm. Assyria, or with Syria and um, Israel. Yeah. You don't need to do any of those. Why? Because God is with us, mm. right? God's on our side, not theirs. It's got that other emphasis yeah. it, that God's there to fight your battles and so on. Um, and I like that emphasis of it when you get the context. But even aside from any of that context, it's a Christmas verse, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's that kind of promise of hope in darkness and you know i think christmas just lovely time of the year in the northern hemisphere you know all the christmas lights against the darkness and so on and when i hear that promise mm. it just reminds me of you know a dark night sky and the the light against it or christmas trees yeah. or whatever because that's the story of christmas it is the promise of a child mm. to come you know of a, of a king to come who's going to put everything right mm. you know again God has reached down to this family and wants that family to be the light to the nations. That family can't be the light to the nations. They're, they're stuck in sin, yep. they're rebelling, you know, they're doing all this religious hypocrisy and so on. But through that, God is going to, through that line, God is going to bring out a king who will be the true light to that nations. Mm. And he starts hinting at that about Jesus in 
prophecies like chapter 7, like chapter 9, again, mm. wonderful one that we always read um, uh, every Christmas. So I'm not just picking out the Christmas verses, but <laughs> there are quite less of these. Um, For unto us a child is mm. born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And this, you know, what could this mean yeah. to a Jew in the 8th century? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mm. You know, it's so beautiful, just that hope that he was giving to them, saying in those dark days, even though you have sinned, God has not given up on this idea of you being the light to the nations. Actually, through that family, yeah. the true Israel will one day come, and that true Israel is Jesus. And again, just to give one more, and these they're not all about Christmas, but they are all about Jesus. The next one's more of a an Easter passage, I, I, I guess. But again, that that it's not just about judgment, it's about hope. Um, as a backdrop as well. But that just, I think, just unrivaled passages of, of Scripture come in uh, Isaiah chapters mm. uh, 52 and 53, um, where, uh, where he starts talking about the suffering servant. Yeah. And at first, the suffering servant seems to be, you know, and again, this is something that the ancient people of God didn't quite have right. They, they had the promise of this child coming, this coming mm. king, But also, like you're talking about the paradox, you then have this suffering servant. Yeah. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the commentators writing around Qumran were mm. writing about two messiahs to come. Mm. One a wow. king, one a suffering servant. But actually, Jesus puts those two things together because he's the king who will suffer. Um, and the suffering servant seems at first to apply to the whole of Israel. And I think that's true. But then it seems to apply to an individual. And I think, obviously, Jesus mm. is that individual and he's the true Israel, if you like. But Isaiah 52, verse 13. I mean, I'll just read this if it's all right, Mark. Yeah, so, absolutely. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they mm. will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that uh, we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yeah, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. I mean, what, you know, what I think is right. And in the 8th century, how could that mean anything but be pointing to Jesus? You know, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God. Mm. You know, perfect picture of what's going on on the cross. Yeah. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. In the 8th century, crucifixion didn't exist. Mm. You know, so this idea that he's being pierced is, you know but pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, mm. and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression mm. of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. You, know, you think about that. He was crucified between the two thieves. Yep. And with the rich in his death, we've got Joseph of mm. Arimathea is laid in his grave. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. So clearly he's died there. We can see he's, you know, he's been assigned a grave. We can see he's suffered, he's been pierced and so on. But then after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So all of a sudden this servant comes back to life. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. I don't know how you can mm. see that as anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and 800 years mm. before what actually happened on the cross. I mean, it's, it's almost a clearer picture of what happened on the cross than we actually even get in the New Testament by seeing it after the yeah. event. And it comes before. So among all these things about judgment and sin and God having to punish sin, what we find is this beautiful prophecies that a king is going to come in the future. Mm. And then we start seeing about the suffering servant. And what we find Jesus does in the New Testament at the cross is bring those two pictures together. That he is that promised mm. king that's basically going to bring us victory but he's going to do it not the way Assyria would do or Syria would do or yeah. the northern kingdom would do in that particular time by bashing people or oppressing people or whatever, but by taking the yeah. path of suffering, by taking people's sins onto himself, overcoming them so that he triumphs, but he triumphs through suffering. Yeah. And I just think so much of that there. It's like, it's like Isaiah's wow. the Bible in miniature. Yeah. Yeah. And you see it like that. Yeah, and when, when you put it like that, it's, it's easy to see why people say, you know, Isaiah is a heavy book, but it yeah. is some people say like the most profound theology in the whole bible Absolutely, yeah, um yeah. that you get this wrestle and i love how you've helped us kind of journey into the story more we we see how we are in the very story of isaiah um and yeah there are questions there are always things to explore and we want to encourage you know us as a whole church to be pressing in with that asking going to life group and and discussing this um but also to not like get so in the weeds that we lose the wonder of wow like this story which began as you shared at the start in creation um my favorite bit about Isaiah is the number of times it talks about trees and right at the start in in Genesis and um, at the fall when when God's saying right there's there's now this division between humans and me yeah but he curses the snake and he says um well you're um you're gonna actually be in like in opposition to humans and there will come someone from the woman who will crush your head and and it's like and it's the the word like seed is used and it's like the snake crusher is kind of who we're waiting for for the for the rest of the bible and then in isaiah this this idea of like trees is picked up and they talk about the seed that comes from a stump like a seemingly dead thing and there's so much judgment where god's like right this is it like you know you, you need to stop right now and um come back to me and yet this stump that seems to be dead has this shoot um and that sort of protrudes from from the stump and it's the seed that was promised yeah um, and it talks about then how through that seed um the, those that come right at the end of Isaiah, I think it was in um, Isaiah 61, talks about how we'll be made oaks of righteousness. And there's yeah. just this theme of the seed comes and actually brings us <laughs> into new life yeah, wonderful, um, yeah. with him. It's just amazing how we can fit in this book, like we are in this book. This yeah. is our story. This is our God. Um, and so, yeah, as we go through the rest of this sermon series, as we... Um, We'll have another one of these episodes where we look some more at some of the themes in Isaiah and how they they relate to us today. Uh, We can just 
I'll sit back and have moments of wonder, of like, thank you, God, for this book, um, and moments of wrestle. But that, that wow, the hope that is there, um, the promises that are there, the revelation we, we get is just yeah, yeah. so powerful. So, yeah, I want to encourage all of you listening to open up Isaiah for yourself um, after the sermons on Sunday. Have a look at the chapters we're looking at. Um, invite God into that journey. Ask him to reveal himself to you and excited to see where we go. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Um, thank you for bringing your wisdom. And um, yeah, thank ready you for, for the rest of the series now, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Martha. All right, see you all soon.